with me to Numbers chapter 24, a blessing or a curse. It's a great week this week, as you know, uh, many of you, not to become political, and I think that can be overdone. I will say this about talking about politics at church, it's wearisome uh, to us if we overdo it. Uh, it's part of what we are going through the last few years, especially. You know, the Bible's very clear. When the wicked rule, the people mourn. <laughs> we got to get over it, though. We got to get beyond that, where we just simply uh, work through it and trust God. Most of the, our thoughts are uh, not going to change those things anyway. Just keep your eyes on the Lord, keep your eyes on the prize, and keep moving forward. But it was a great week, and, and you know, so let's praise the Lord for that. This unconstitutional, yes, absolutely. Overturned. Now it comes to the states for them to uh, redirect each state. And you'll watch. The states that, that uh, ban it are going to be blessed. The curse will be lifted. Those that refuse will suffer and continue to suffer the curse of abortion. You know... Just praise the Lord that we've taken a step to redirect the nation. That's a step towards life, and I am thankful for that. You know, when it, people don't realize that that sin is a sin that has brought a curse. This oppression that we feel is because of sin. Sin is oppressive. It's destructive. I agree with Derek Prince, uh, who's now with the Lord. Good brother, solid Bible teacher. Uh, he said this years ago concerning this matter. He says, Quote, how strange that people who are active in the fight against racial prejudice and injustice, and rightly so, actually condone and promote the practice of abortion. Strange, too, that people who never think of raising a hand in violence against a small child feel no compassion towards even a smaller child in its mother's womb. Somehow the substitution of the word fetus for infant dulls people's senses and consciences, and yet the change in terminology is in no way affects the nature of such an act. Somehow, someone has asked, what hope is left for society in which mothers kill their own babies? God's attitude towards abortion is not affected by the change in terminology. He classifies it quite simply as murder and deals with it accordingly. In nation after nation around the world today, millions of lives are being blighted by the curse that follows this act. And he's right. And thank the Lord that we are moving in a direction that can change that. You know, if we curse what God has blessed, then we bring a curse upon ourselves. And God has said the fruit of the womb he has blessed he loves children and he blesses children and we should love children and we should bless children and so this curse that we're talking about in the context here okay, chapters 23 and 24 was all about Balak king of Moab seeking to curse Israel and you cannot curse what God has blessed 
And to do so is to bring the curse upon yourself. And so here in chapter 24, just towards the end of actually 23, we pick up the third and fourth oracle of Balaam, the soothsayer um, from Mesopotamia. And so we'll pick it up here in verse 27. Then Balak said to Balaam, Please come, and I'll take you to another place, and perhaps it will please God that you may curse them for me from there. And so Balak took Balaam to the top of Peor, and that overlooks the wasteland. Balaam said to Balak, Build for me here seven altars, and prepare for me here the seven bulls and seven rams. And Balak did as Balaam had said, and offered a bull and a ram on every altar. Now when Balaam saw that it pleased the Lord to bless Israel, he did not go as other times to seek to use sorcery, but he set his face towards the wilderness. And Balaam raised his eyes and saw Israel encamped to the, in their tribes, and the Spirit of God came upon him. And he took up his oracle and said, The utterance of Balaam, the son of Beor, the utterance of a man whose eyes are opened, the utterance of him who hears the words of God, who sees the vision of the Almighty, who falls down with eyes wide open. How lovely are your tents, O Jacob, your dwelling, O Israel, like valleys that stretch out, like gardens by the riverside, like aloes planted by the Lord, like cedars beside the waters. He shall pour water from his buckets. His seed shall be in many waters. His king shall be higher than Agag, and his kingdom shall be exalted. God brings him out of Egypt. He has the strength of a wild ox. He shall consume the nations, his enemies. He shall break their bones and pierce them with his arrows. He bows down, he lies down as a lion. And as a lion, who shall, who shall arouse him? Blessed is he who blesses you, and cursed is he who curses you. And then Balak's anger was aroused against Balaam, and he struck his hands together and said to Balak, and Balak said to him, said to Balaam, I called you to curse my enemies, and look, you have bountifully blessed them these three times. Now therefore flee to your place. And I said, I would greatly honor you, but in fact the Lord has kept you back from honor. And so Balaam said to Balak, did I not speak to your messenger whom you sent to me, saying, If Balak were to give me a house full of silver and gold, I could not go beyond the word of the Lord to do good or bad of my own will. What the Lord says, that I must speak. And now indeed I am going to my people. Come, and I will advise you of what this people will do to your people in the latter days. In this third one, and introduction actually to the last one, we see uh, initially Balak doesn't really get it. Look, let's go to another place. And obviously, as we've covered in the past couple weeks uh, going through these chapters, uh, it's the type of Satan here attacking God's people. And this is what he does. If something doesn't work to trip you up, to, to f cause you to fail or bring... Uh, He's not able to steal from you or kill you or destroy you. That's the work of the devil, we know. He'll take you to another place. 
Whatever it takes to, to bring down what God loves is what Satan does. So he says here the top of Peor, that is a mountaintop. And as we have been taught, the cult worship, we're in the mountainous high places. Uh, these, this is the ancient understanding that the gods lived in the mountains. The mountains were places where obviously hard to get to, so they were uh, sort of a lonely place by themselves and an exalted place where they could look down upon earthlings, as it were. And uh, the idea was, as you went to these high places, you were ascending to the gods to worship them. And they were these deities of, with a power and authority over man. And that they needed to be... Um, as it were, compensated and, or appeased, as it were, to, to have the blessings upon their lives. And uh, so we have these references, as you, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, of people going to the high places. That's where they would set up these cult worships and find out throughout uh, quite often in the Old Testament here. But notice the word here, perhaps. <laughs> you know, perhaps is an interesting word. You know, it, it implies uncertainty or the possibility. It's sort of one of those ambivalent terms almost, you know, one way or the other. Um, but the idea here is that maybe God will change his mind. Can we get God to change his mind? You know, we, we understand from the first two oracles that were uttered that God wanted to bless Israel. And uh, perhaps God will change his mind and curse these people. And so we say to that, uh, perhaps not. <laughs> you know, uh, perhaps be like you haven't been paying attention and you need to uh, hear it once more, even though it's been repeated over and over, that God will not curse that which he has blessed. Perhaps be like you have no idea what's going on in this world and God's intentions or plans with mankind and you're completely self-absorbed and you can't see beyond the end of your own nose, you know, that kind of a thing. You know, there are people who do have selective hearing. I uh, think I've been guilty of that on a few occasions because they don't really want to hear what's being said. It doesn't really fit into my paradigm or, or my desires or wants. And so, therefore, I'm resisting uh, hearing it. And, and, and I, maybe I'll say that I don't really understand. Well, you know, that's, it's not that you don't understand the words. It's just that you don't want to receive the truth that's being spoken. And this is a problem with many. There are those who think if they re refuse the truth, if they refuse something that they don't want, then it's not going to be true. And that's quite a mistake because just because you believe something not to be true doesn't mean that it isn't true. And just because you don't think the Lord is real and that he's um, not going to come back and return, that you think all Christians are a little loopy and crazy, that Oh, Jesus is going to come back. And you mean Jesus really rose from the dead? Yes, he did, and he is coming back, whether you believe it or not. And this is, uh, again, just because people refuse that, uh, perhaps they are blind and they cannot see. Yes. But again, following this same pattern, he says, build an altar. And this is, again, the idea of atonement. There was an understanding that the God's in the mountains, the gods that were worshipped were greater entities and they needed to be appeased. And of course, when I use the word gods, it's little g, they're idols, they're, they're the, you know, the watchers that are like a uh, high level of angels, as mentioned in the book of Daniel. Uh, these had ruling power over the nations. 
And you'll get that unseen realm activity when you read through the book of Daniel. And they, uh, the idea of building an altar so that uh, there was this appeasing of them because the one who offers the sacrifice obviously is inferior to the one receiving the sacrifice. And there's always this bond that takes place between the sacrificer and who it's being sacrificed to. And, uh, and of course, we know that there's uh, sometimes a sacrificial meal that's attached to these sacrifices. So the pagans actually copied what God had instituted long ago with Adam and, and those that loved the Lord. And they you know, sort of mimicked it, counterfeited it, and ruined it. And, but we'll see here there's a difference between those two sacrifices that are made. Uh, we don't have that going on in our world today where we see open sacrifice of animals. It's all, all this kind of, it is happening, it, but it happens in secret. Uh, there is still Baal worship uh, throughout the world. It's hidden. It's behind closed doors, uh, unfortunately. Uh, there is still the worship of the devil. And so uh, whether it's done by people who over, you know, overtly worship the enemy, and there are those, but there are those who have uh, the, the altar in their mind. They worship the God in their, of, of their own creation that they've, made up in their own mind. You know, my God would never do this. Or my God would never do that. And it's really, they've been uh, deceived into th to thinking that they're pleasing God because they've got this self-righteous idea within their minds that this is their God. Uh, and not necessarily the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible's of a different order. There's no one else like him. He is beyond this world and beyond our comprehension. And the true sacrifice that he wants, as the Bible tells us in Psalm 51, is that of a broken and contrite heart. A broken and contrite spirit he will not despise. So we, we are to come to the God of the Bible on bent knees, broken in heart, humbling ourselves before him knowing that we are not righteous, that there's a difference between who we are and who he is. If we're going to come into sacred space where he dwells, we must come through the blood of the sacrifice that he's provided. And that has happened in the person of Jesus Christ. We have no way of entering sacred space without the blood of Christ upon our hearts. And yet the gods of the nations, they required worship. They required sacrifice. They wanted the people to grovel. And here it says that Balaam sought not to use soothsaying at this point. He figured it out that God didn't need to be groveled. He didn't need to you know, work God in a sense to get him to bless or get him to speak to him. Because God, the God of the Bible, is a God who's willing to bless and wants to bless, desires to extend life to his created ones. Whereas these gods desired sacrifice, groveling, and, and an understanding that they were lesser beings. And so in this case, he didn't have to seek the enchantments and understand that that's the way it is for you and I. We don't have to seek the Lord. We don't have to work God. Aren't you glad? You know, you, you, you have to be a good boy. You have to be a good girl and, and 
make sure you're, you're, you're not naughty and you're nice, you know. And then if you are, and God can look with favor on you and bless you, see. We're not to approach God on the basis of performance. We could never have our performance sufficient for God to bless because our performance isn't perfect. God requires perfection. He, he requires absolute holiness, which none of us can provide either one of those things. So we approach a God on the basis of faith, and the righteousness by which we approach him is a gift that he gives us through our faith. Jesus accomplished that for us. That's why he died on the cross. That's what justification is all about. It's presenting ourselves before God just as if we'd never sinned. But we have sinned, but he took the payment for us. We've been set free and washed. And now, he, in a sense, as we've said before, Jesus became what I am, sin, that I might become what he is. That's righteous. But it's a gift. It's the great exchange. So coming to God on the basis of that brokenness is imperative for you and for me. Notice here it says that he raised his eyes. He's having an, an encounter with God. Now, this is a mysterious individual, as we've talked about before. He has a connection with God. I mean, the, he, uh, this utterance here in verse 3 and 4, uh, he, he's sort of explaining the experience that he's having. His eyes uh, raised, and he saw the Lord, and then the Spirit of God came upon him. <laughs> the guy who falls down with wide oh, uh, eyes wide open. So he's, he's having, he's, there's a connection in the spirit. Now, in a good way, I, you know, this is sort of beyond me. It's above my pay grade. I've never had that kind of experience. I'm not seeking that kind of experience. But when we think about who we are and, and being spiritual beings and all, think about Stephen for a moment, who, who, who testified there in Acts of a tremendous sermon. And, and, and because of his boldness and his power, uh, he got stoned. And he's and, and as he's dying, he's being stoned, he sees in the Spirit, and, and he has the face shining as an angel. There, there's what they call, for those who are, have been martyred, either through burning or others, they have a smile on their face. They call it the martyr's face, because they, they are no longer suffering in the flesh. They're now seeing into glory, just as Stephen saw into glory. And there's, there is that connection with God in the Spirit. And uh, I think it's important for us to, to just be reminded of our makeup. Sometimes we forget how we connect with God, how we commune with God. You know, we're body, we're soul, and we're spirit. Uh, and, 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 you know, I think sometimes we forget that we, we don't uh, interact with God in our minds as much as we interact with Him in our spirits. And I'll explain that a little bit more here. God created us this way, body, soul, and spirit, that we could have intimate personal relationship and in the in the garden before the falls it, it was a perfect setup the spirit was uppermost in controlling each individual it was in control of the soul so to speak and it had the uh, priority over the bodily needs at the fall what happened well god told them with the test in the garden the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil don't Eat from that tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For in the day, this is Genesis 2, 9 and uh, 15 through 17. In the day that you eat of it, you'll die. Now they ate 
And God said, but in the day that you eat, you'll die. So how did they die? They did die because God cannot lie, and he said they would. So they had to die some way. And if you understand, the biblical definition of death means separation. So the, the moment they partook of that forbidden fruit, they were separated spiritually from God. Their spirit died. Their ability to commune with God in a very intimate, personal way was broken and shattered. And so then the human race, as we know it, from that point forward, we're all, we're all born spiritually dead. We're not aware of God. We have no way of communing with God in our spirit because our spirits are separated from Him. And we, as Jesus said, need to be born again. And this is what happens when you come to Christ, when you come to the Lord and say, look, I am a train wreck. <laughs> I am a sinner. I have sinned. I have guilt. I have done thus and so, and I confess my sins, and I get real with God, and I realize that I need Him, and I ask for forgiveness. My spirit is then touched by the Holy Spirit, and I'm given life. I'm born again. I'm born of the Spirit. And now I can begin to have this intimate personal relationship with God that He always intended for you and I to have and all man to have from the very beginning. Now, if there are those who have taken this analogy of body, soul, and spirit, and they've likened it unto the tabernacle in the Old Testament because Paul in the New Testament says we are the temple of God, right? And it's a good analogy, but if you look at the, the tabernacle... And you see the outer court, which would be representative of the body. And then we have the inner court, which would be representative of the soul. Every inner court, every soul is different. You're different than me, and I'm probably, you're probably thankful for that, but yeah, you are. And I'm different from you. And I'm not necessarily, I, I guess I'm thankful for that too. <laughs> We're different from each other. Every soul is unique, just like every snowflake that drops upon the earth is unique and different. God is a God of variety. Every soul is different. But every soul, the way God had made us, was made with a spirit. And those two are sort of intricately mixed together. So you have the outer court, the body, the inner court, the soul, and then the holy of holies, which represents our spirit. Now the unbeliever, spirit is dead. There's no communion there with God. For the person who's born again, there is communion with God. Remember, uh, if we want to fulfill that analogy, Exodus 25, when they're making the furniture and constructing the tabernacle, they're told to make it exactly uh, like the blueprint that uh, Moses was given in, uh, from the heavenly vision. In Exodus 25, if you're taking notes, verse 20 through 22, speak of the construction of the ark. And this would be the place where God would manifest his presence. Uh, it was a furniture which was symbolic of his presence, but it was more than just symbolic. He would come and dwell. He would manifest his presence there above the mercy seat, between the cherub and their wings that were outstretched. It says in verse 22, in regards to this ark of the covenant, it is says, there I will meet you, and I will speak to you, or with you, from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherub, which are the ark of the testimony, about everything which I give you in commandment to the children of Israel. You see, this is where we 
commune with God. It is in our spirit. And it's important. And people who uh, don't know the Lord do not have their spirit made alive where they become conscious of God. That's important to understand. You and I commune with God through our spirit. There are many, and unfortunately, that come to church and they attend churches throughout the world and yet they have not been born again. They think because they have grown up in church and they know about the Bible, they, know, they have knowledge of God through reading and understanding intellectually, and somehow that works for their religious experience. There are men who study the Bible and know the Bible very well. There are Hebrew scholars. There are Greek scholars. They know the language. They're skilled, but they don't know the author. And there are people that are so simple that are illiterate that have asked Jesus to forgive them, and they know God. You know, so God is no respecter of persons. It isn't intellectually that we come to know God. It is through our spirit. And that comes through a brokenness and a contrition before him. We all struggle to get to the holy of holies, don't we? We struggle because of our flesh and our fallenness to enter into the place where we can hear God's voice, hear what he's telling us to do. Unfortunately, when we are born again, we're not perfected instantly. <laughs> That's only the beginning, right? The beginning of sanctification begins in our life. God begins to work in our souls to form us and transform us into the, his very image. Now here, here's the, where the rubber meets the road, so to speak. When I become a Christian, I still have issues in my life. I'm not perfected. And I'm forgiven, and I'm washed, and I'm cleansed. But I'm not aware of all the imperfections that I've acquired and that I was born with. And so God begins to work in my soul, in my spirit. He begins to work with the rebellion. He begins to work with the uh, bad attitudes and the things that maybe I've picked up along the way. And unfortunately uh, for us, God never gives up on us. He keeps working in those areas to refine us and, and to make us more like him. And the work of the sanctification is the work of the Holy Spirit. It's not something you can do. You cannot clean up your act, so to speak. You cannot make yourself better. You cannot make yourself like Jesus. It is a complete surrender and allowing the Holy Spirit to do His work within you. He's the one who provides the victory. It is through the power of the Holy Spirit, not through the energy and strength of talent or intellect. It is totally a faith walk in trusting the Lord to transform us. If I fail to recognize these rebellious attitudes or carnalities in my life that need to be repented of, and I continually resist the work of the Holy Spirit of wanting to change me, these can become strongholds within the life of a believer. 
And this is an important thing to understand. I've been asked, I can't tell you how many times over the years, can Christians be demonized? Can they be possessed? Well, the easy answer, the short answer is no. They can, a Christian, a true born-again believer uh, cannot be possessed. The devil can't get into the Holy of Holies, but he can handle, or he can take, make strongholds out of your rebellions and your willingness to yield to what God wants to do and changing you. And these strongholds uh, can be exploited by the enemy and restrain me from the victory that is provided for me in Christ. And carnality is something that has to be repented of. Rebellion is something that must be acknowledged. I must be honest with God. Look, I just did this. I just said this. I am this. Honesty. Confess. That's what, that's what confession is. It isn't coming to the priest. It isn't coming to the pastor, to the elders. It's coming directly to our high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. I am thus and so, and I am not holding back, Lord. Please forgive me. Please change me. When I give God, I must give God permission to work in my heart, to transform me. It just doesn't happen passively. There must be an active, as it were, passivity. I confess, I admit, I implore, he does the work. The active part is me confessing. The passive part is I let, I'm allowing him by the power of his spirit to do his special work in my soul, transforming me. If you want a list of carnalities, just turn to Galatians 5, 19 through 21. If you just happen to, like, well, what's that? Well, that'll tell you, like a sexual uncleanness, vulgar language, immorality, uh, overindulgence, you know, food, you know, gluttony, those kinds of things. Uh, driving personal ambition and you just look uncontrolled anger outbursts you know it's all right there ugly god help us that's who i am that's who i am apart from the grace of god and we need to see that we need to understand that our base nature is that i don't care how religious atmosphere you grew up in that is our base nature if save for the grace of god i'm going to kill babies I'm going to commit heinous crimes because that's the fallen nature that mankind has. But by the grace of God, we're spared from those things. Is it, are you tracking with me on this? I hope so. Now, when it comes to demonic activity, the issue of demon possession, it, the, the word, it's a little confusing for some, I suppose. It, it's transliter transliterated, demonized. And it's, demons do the same kind of work. They don't change what they do. They demonize believers and they demonize unbelievers. The difference between the two is ownership. As I said before, the demons cannot get into the Holy of Holies. But they can possess an unbeliever. They can have ownership. But the activity that they perform on mankind is the same activity. They demonize, they oppress and they exploit strongholds and the willingness, the unwillingness of people not to change or confess and get things right with God. If you rebel against God, you're opening yourself up to demonic attack. It's just that simple. See, God wants to commune with us in the holy place. He wants us to come in there. He wants to speak to us and meet with us. Now, if you're expecting... God's voice to be in English words, you should be careful with that. 
Rarely does God communicate in sentences to his people. The only sentences that he speaks to us in is right here, the written word. You can take this, and he expects you to read it so you know it. And you learn his heart and mind right here. But I'm not, I will, there are exceptions. There is what the Bible calls rima. There's a, a word that God will speak to us that that's kinda, can be kind of audible in your mind. But it's rare. It's a, it's a, usually it happens when you least expect it. God will speak to you something like, whoa. And then you realize, you know, that was the voice of my shepherd. But generally speaking, God communicates and communes with us in our spirits. And so, to put it this way, think about something that you've really prayed about. And, you, you know, you just, you've really brought it to God and you're just like, I don't know what God's will is here. And you just, day after day and week after week, you keep bringing it before the Lord. And then, in the process of doing that, it kind of dawns on you, I think this is what God wants me to do. You see, somehow, in that process, God is communicating it in a very subtle, I call it the supernatural, natural means by which he communicates to us. We just come to understand, oh, this is what God wants us to do. But there were no words in English spoken. It just, it's an impression on our souls coming from our spirits. And I think that's generally how it works. And then just understand, God leaves a lot of choices up to you. What brand of toothpaste you use is completely up to you, you know. <laughs> but don't get into this thing where you, okay, is that the Lord? And you're trying to hear English or Spanish or whatever your language may be. You know, it could be your voice. It could be the enemy's voice. There are familiar spirits, right? They, you know, there's lots of noises. There's lots of, you know, dialogue in your brain. And so God sort of avoids that, goes through other means so you're not confused. And that's important to understand. This is part of growing in the Lord. It just comes down to this. Without the Holy Spirit illuminating, enlightening, and inspiring us, we're going to remain in ignorance. We just need His Spirit to guide us. And he, it will always be in line with the Word of God. If you are, something is revealed to you that is contrary to Scripture, you can rest assured that it's not from God. And if you can't find your experience in the Scripture, then just leave it alone and just consider it well as an experience. You know, your experience is not for everybody in the church. <laughs> it's it, you know, something that, you know, Balaam had an experience here. Was he right with God? Okay, you, you get it. His, guy, his eyes were opened. He heard the words of God. He saw the vision of the Almighty. I mean, this is pretty powerful stuff. You notice he says, he, did, he didn't have the appropriate response. He fell down. <laughs> if you have a true encounter with God, it will bring humility. It always does. Consider Isaiah chapter 6. Woe is me, for I'm undone. I am taken apart. This is not to be... Uh, this is an experience that we all experience at some point in time. When you come to church sometimes and the presence of God is, is really upon us, right? And you feel, I feel guilt. <laughs> I feel this. I, you know, I feel uncomfortable. That, that's, that's not abnormal. 
He's holy. We're not. It just, it's just a matter of, God, I, you know, cleanse me. I, I don't want to feel this condemnation. I don't want to feel this conviction. I, I, please, just forgive me. Wash me. Give me eyes to see with, ears to hear with. And with that contrition comes a peace and a joy. And an, an, just a love and an acceptance and a forgiveness that's out of this world. God loves us. He cares so much. You see, it was this whole thing was all about blessing Israel. Yeah, this guy was the nutcase, so to speak, Balaam. I mean, he wasn't supposed to go. But you know what? God used it. And I think God allowed it in his sovereignty. It wasn't his direct will, but he permitted it to happen because I'm going to use it to bless my people and understand that every weapon formed against you will not prosper, but God has the power to turn that attack and the enemy into a blessing. And that's what we have to trust in. You can break down some of this on your own here, but just, you know, the verse 7 is kind of cool. God's got a bucket. Did you know that? (laughs) It's full of water and seed. You want some of that? Because it's going to grow. Whatever God gives you is going to grow. Uh, won't spend a lot of time on that, but I just thought that was great. The king here is obviously Jesus. He's greater than Agag, the highest king in the land, right? He's the one that saved his people out of Egypt, given them the strength to do what they've done and what they were to do, and he's the one that consumed their enemies and fought for them. I mean, these are great blessings that were recognized by uh, Balaam and given these words given to him by Yahweh for the Balak, the king of Moab, to, to understand that perhaps he was misguided in bringing him over here, right? And so he's angry, claps his hands and all that kind of thing. And he says, man, you realize you, the, this Yahweh God has kept you back from honor. I could have honored you. You know, think about that for a moment. That's an honor you can live without. What the world has to offer you and me, it's all temporal. It's all going to burn. It's all short term. And, you know, think about all the stuff that we buy, and we, it perishes with the using, right? It, it, the new trucks, the new cars, the new clothes, the new houses, whatever we have ob- obtained over the years. <laughs> it doesn't stay new, does it? The novelty wears off, and what we thought it might bring to us in satisfaction sort of fades but the things that God gives, the joy, the love, the acceptance, that never fades. It grows. It gets better. It's eternal. You know, the temporal is all about what are we going to eat? What are we going to drink? All that. We're not to seek that, according to Matthew 6, 31 to 33. Seek the first the kingdom of God and everything else will be added to you, right? But we should also seek not the honor that comes from men. And see, actually, Jesus condemned the Pharisees for that. You are those who seek honor from one another. How can you believe? John 8, John 6 through 8, that whole passage is about the lack of faith that the Pharisees actually had. They could not believe God because they were horizontal. They were looking for admiration and respect from men. And we're never to do that. We're to honor the Lord. In fact, that's what 1 Samuel 2.30 says, If you honor the Lord, you and I, if we will honor the Lord, you know what's going to happen to you? He's going to honor you. If you despise him and despise his word and turn your back upon the word, you'll be lightly esteemed. 
You don't want that. Nobody wants that. We want his honor. And his honor comes by just simply trusting him. So Balaam realizes that he's obviously disappointed Balak, king of Moab. And so verse 14 is very interesting. He says, come now and I'll advise you. And Moses refers to this counsel that he, in chapter 31 where he says, look, these women caused the children of Israel through the counsel of Balaam to trespass against the Lord in the incident of Peor. Now the, the worship of Baal Peor had to do with the, the cult and the sexual practices that were involved in that cult worship. And so essentially, in so many words, what Balaam told Balak to do says, look, I can't curse them, but I'll tell you what, and I'm kind of paraphrasing a little bit of this, obviously. If you'll send your pretty women down there, and they're little gods, there's no way those, those Israeli men are going to resist those beautiful women. And they're going to take them into their tent, they're going to bow down to their gods, and that will bring God's wrath down upon them, and he'll judge them for it. And so this is an important thing because this is the thing that is brought into the New Testament. Remember a couple weeks ago I talked to you about how it's mentioned in the New Testament. We have the way of Balaam, we have the doctrine of Balaam, and we have the heir of Balaam, and they're all mentioned in the New Testament. And so that we should, that should perk up, uh, perk up our ears a little bit to listen. Second Peter reads it this way in Second Peter 2.15. They have forsaken the right way and gone astray, following the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness, but he was rebuked for his iniquity. The dumb donkey speaking with a man's voice restrained the madness of the prophet. The way of Balaam is selling his spiritual gift, prostituting his spiritual gift for payment, for, for money. That is his way. The heir of Balaam, this is somewhat tied to that, and Jude 11 says, Woe unto them, for they have gone in the way of Cain, run greedily in the air of Balaam for profit, and perished in the rebellion of Korah. The heir of Balaam and is actually fourfold at least, assuming that God wanted him to go with the ambassadors of Balak. He, did, he was told to wait in chapter 22, verse 20, if the men come and call you, he didn't wait for that to happen. As soon as it was morning, he sandaled his donkey, and he's on his way. And, of course, we know the story of God's little funnel, just bringing him into that narrow path, that narrow place, and just sparing his life just barely. So the heir of Balaam, assuming God wanted him to do, to do something against his will, not another heir, not waiting for the Lord, Number three, assuming possibly that God would change his mind, perhaps, you know, issue. God's blessing upon Israel could actually become a curse. And number four, giving evil counsel to Balak for money. Remember, the Lord, his heir, the Lord, he said this, Balaam said this, I can only speak what the Lord tells me to speak. Well, then why did you... Advise the king of Moab to do this 
to count, why did you counsel him to, to send those prostitutes down into the camp of Israel, you know? So that is the heir of Balaam. And then we have the doctrine of Balaam, and that's Revelation 2.14. I have a few things against you because you have those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel so, to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. So the worship of Baal, Pior is, Pior is the idea there. The compromise of cult worship and the practices of the heathen. To intermarry with the heathen it is so wrong for a Christian, a true born-again Christian, to marry an unbeliever. That You cannot do that. I will not marry a Christian to a non-Christian. I would marry two unbelievers. That's not an unequal yoke. I haven't had to do that. Well, maybe I have, I, unknowingly. Not knowing a couple very well. But you just, you can't disobey the Lord in that manner. You know, one of the things you see in the church is this practice of immorality. Well, you know, we're going to get married. We're living together now, but, you know, we're Christians. We love the Lord, but we live together. That should not be named among the saints. You know, we're to avoid the appearance of evil and, you know, that kind of a thing. And, and you know, look, you know, the world has a right to judge us as Christians. In, in our, and, and we're to avoid those things that could bring uh, shame to the name of Christ. I mean, how, well, why would I want to give Jesus' reputation a black eye through my immorality, you know? I mean, those are the kind of things that cut deep. But it's, it's, uh, it's come into the church. There's people that feel comfortable living in fornication while they're going to church. And that's really sad. They could be comfortable uh, in a church. It tells you, what are they preaching the word? Or are they just tickling ears? I'll let you judge. This fourth oracle, 15 through 25, the first part of it there is essentially the same thing, the eyes wide open, hearing the word of God, but he adds one thing, and he has knowledge of the Most High. Do you remember how his life ends, Balaam's life ends? He gets killed when, when Israel goes in against the Midianites. He's in that group, and he gets slaughtered with them. Here, all that knowledge, all that experiential experience with God, and God judges him. So, it's not about knowing, it's about doing, is it not? And so, he does have a couple things, and I'll close here with this, and I, it's, it draws us back where we need to be in our eyes upon Jesus. Yeah, I won't read but you can finish reading all of the detail for, on your own there, 15 through 25, to finish the chapter. But notice what he says about the blessing beginning uh, in verse 17. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob. A scepter shall rise out of Israel. A batter the, and batter the brow of Moab and destroy the sons of Tumult. And so... Who is him? We know that that's the Messiah. This is messianic. Somehow, by the mercy and grace of God, he was able to see and understand what was coming. And uh, he's not now at that time. He's not near. 
a star out of Jacob, a scepter. I mean, Messiah will, the Messiah of the world, the Savior of the world will come out of the nation of Israel, God's nation. That was the predictive prophecy here. And would, again, shatter Moab and destroy the sons of Tumult. Now, you remember, this was actually fulfilled under David. He took out Moab. He took out Edom. He destroyed everyone who was brought in subjectivity. And that's why Solomon's reign was a reign of peace. It says he destroyed the sons of Tumult. That would be uh, a fulfillment of Genesis 25 and Genesis 27, where Jacob is pronouncing the blessing upon, uh, or, East, or excuse me, Isaac is pronouncing the blessing upon Jacob, and, and then, of course, Esau is involved in some of that. The sons of Tumult, the troublemakers in the Middle East, essentially, uh, what was going on there. So God fulfilled these uh, sort of obscure prophecies there in verse 20 and 23, the uh, Amalek, Edom, Esau, the Canaanites, you know, they were attached to the Midian, Midianites along with Amalek and Israel. They were sort of a mixture group. And they, that's, uh, there's some relation there with Moses' uh, father-in-law. Uh, in verse that sticks out to us there as we close. Uh, verse 23, who shall live when God does this? And that's a good question. There's no one who lives, who disobeys God. Because to disobey God is to bring upon yourself a curse. Choose this day whom you will serve. If we, in Joshua, right? If we choose to serve God and be obedient to him, it's blessing. If we disobey and rebel against him, it's the curse. But the Bible tells, cursed is everyone who's hung on a tree. And understand and be reminded again this morning that Jesus hung on a tree. He became the curse for you. He became the curse for me. God doesn't want us to live under the curse of sin. He wants to, us to live under the blessing of life because blessing brings life, curses, curses bring death. If sin has brought its curse upon you and you need deliverance, as we stand here, we're going to close here with some music. If you'll come, the ladies will come and sing. And we'll have a time of meditation here. Do your business with God. If you have a stronghold in your life through rebellion, if you have carnality in your life, we're not going to just sit here and hear a message like this and not take the time to respond. All of us have issues with sin. Christians battle with sin, or we should be battling with it, right? We have to fight the good fight. We have to work in, in, to bring our flesh, as it were, in subjection to the Spirit. Paul says in Romans 8, who through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body. God is not, ha oh, well, you know, God knows who I am, and we sort of excuse ourselves and we let ourselves remain in carnality. Well, that's going to retard your spiritual growth. You don't want that. I don't want that. I want to get as close to Jesus and I want to grow in godliness more and more each and every day. If I slip and I fall, I want to get back up. I'm going to wallow in self-pity 
Oh, you know, it's just, you know. No. I have the Spirit of God. I can overcome. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Yet not I, but Christ in me, right? That's the warrior's mantra. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And so that will be the prayer that you have as we sing this, these closing songs here. So stand with me and uh, let me pray for you.